It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. As always, a great pleasure to be with you today. And uh, by the by, you can join us during the week on Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow. It's 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time every day, Monday through Friday. And if by some odd chance you can't watch us, just dial up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the whole story. And um, we can live stream. You can live stream us on the Internet. It's uh, the it's the Larry. No, it's Larry Kudlow show dot com. I think that's right. Larry Kudlow show dot com. You can go there, too. So there's no reason you can't hear it. And we have plenty to do today. We've got Congressman Kevin Brady from the Ways and Means Committee in the House. We're going to so there's a crazy deal brewing. It's kind of a heartbreaker for me. I hope it's not going to happen. But Joe Manchin talking to Chuck Schumer about a trillion-dollar tax increase to somehow pay for $500 billion of more renewable fuel subsidies, which is exactly what we don't need. And we're going to talk later. Alex Epstein is going to talk about the uh, problem with gas at the pump which is just about public enemy number one, along with inflation and high food prices and a baby formula. But um, there's no refineries. <laughs> Joe Biden wants to go and attack Exxon and Chevron. He wants to probably maybe bring 20, 30,000 National Guard troops down to Midland, Texas, right? Surround the town. That's, uh, that's the heart of the Permian Basin. And take over Exxon and Chevron, right? Declare war fully. It means declared war on fossil fuels. He wants to end fossil fuels. We all know that. But we will talk about that because the problem with high gas prices, which Mr. Biden does not understand, is no refining capacity. And in fact, let's look at his whole litany. He had a an interview with the AP, Associated Press, first time he's had a media interview in quite a while, and he walked through a bunch of issues. Let me share them with you. The first one that's so great is he said, he said, um, the idea that federal spending causes inflation is bizarre. That's his word, not mine. Bizarre. Okay, this is a terrific thing. It's a whopper. An absolute whopper. I don't know why he insists on trying to fool the American people or fool voters or just provide falsehoods. But he told the guy, he said, this idea that federal spending causes inflation is bizarre. And I'll say to you, at this point, virtually nobody outside the White House building doubts that excessive spending, and most particularly the $2 trillion so-called rescue package in March of 2021. There's almost nobody outside that building that doesn't believe that's what the principal cause of inflation. I mean, it's just like nobody. I mean, you've got the latest Fox News poll showing Mr. Biden that a 29% approval rating on the economy. That's right. 29%. He 
It's got 67% disapproval. And on inflation, his approval is 23% compared to 71% disapproval. I mean, look at what's bizarre here is his numbers. It's his numbers. And he still makes the case that federal spending didn't cause inflation. Look at leading Democratic economists, you know, Larry Summers, Jason Furman, people like that. They've argued all along that massive government spending was unnecessary and inflationary. You know, the Trump economy, Trump, Trump, Donald Trump handed him, Biden, a pretty strong economy coming out of COVID. I mean, we had that terrible quarter in 2020, the second quarter, everything went down, stock market crashed, the economy crashed, people were locked up. I don't know whether the lockup was necessary. At that point, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But that's not where I want to go on this. What I want to say is, with deregulation and energy independence and the Trump tax cuts, the economy snapped back from you know a bad natural disaster. A horrible natural disaster. So you plunged, you know, a third of GDP fell... But it snapped right back in the in the third quarter. The fourth quarter of 2020 was up 4.5%. And when Joe Biden came into office in the first quarter of 2021, the economy was 6.5%. That was the Trump V-shaped recovery. 6.5% growth. That's a big number. They're still in denial about that. Biden argues they were, we were stalling into recession, and so we needed the $2 trillion in the spending package, which, no, we didn't. The economy was basically moving towards full capacity. And what do we get? Too much demand. Too much spending. Inflation started to rise almost immediately. And, of course, the Federal Reserve did its part. It bought the bonds from the deficit finance. There were never any pay-fors. You know, and they crank up the money supply by 25% at an annual rate. So there you have it. I mean, it's not hard, even though Biden's in denial. He won't give up on this. It's really, really something. And, of course, he went from, right, last year, no inflation, his argument was, even though the numbers said otherwise. Then, remember, the inflation was going to be transitory, right? That was the White House and the Federal Reserve. Then it became Vladimir Putin's inflation, and then most recently, it's become ExxonMobil's inflation. Blame the oil companies, right? Blame the oil companies. And then the oil companies, he's saying, are doing this deliberately somehow. They're not patriotic. And what they have to do is produce more oil and, and produce more gasoline, refine more gasoline. They're not paying their fair share of taxes. Remember that one? That's a good left wing. Always your enemy doesn't pay fair share of taxes. You want to know a great number. In 2020, of course, when everything imploded, Exxon lost $20 billion. $20 billion they lost. In 2021, as the economy was coming back and oil prices recovered, gasoline prices recovered, ExxonMobil paid, are you ready for this, $40 billion in taxes. 
you think that's good enough for, you know, think they paid their fair share? $40 billion? Really? That's a big number. It was like, remember when Biden, not so long ago, I don't know, a month ago or two months ago, was attacking Elon Musk, who wanted free speech, still does, wanting buying out Twitter to create free speech. So he attacked Elon Musk, another billionaire who didn't pay his fair share. Elon Musk last year paid $11 billion in taxes. Okay, how cool is that? How cool is that? So, another big whopper, another big whopper from Biden's AP interview. He said, look, inflation in the U.S. is higher no, lower, sorry. Inflation is lower here than it is around the world. That's just not true. Our inflation is higher than the rest of the world. So, you know, people done some research on this. Inflation is lower in China, Saudi Arabia, Japan, Switzerland, Australia, France, South Korea, South Africa, Canada, Italy, India, Mexico, Germany, and the entire Euro area. <laughs> The San Francisco Federal Reserve did a study. Core inflation in the U.S. Core inflation in the U.S. is running twice what it is in the OECD major economic countries. Twice. We are twice as high here. Jason Furman, a leading Democratic economist, right? he wrote a good piece in the Wall Street Journal, I don't know, last week or some such, And he said the same thing. Basically, number one, U.S. spending stimulus to boost demand was significantly higher than Europe's. Okay. Number two, U.S. inflation, again, looking at core inflation, was about twice as high as Europe. Number three, U.S. wage increases at 6%, twice as high as Europeans, 3%. So we stimulated more, we have much higher inflation and wages, and Biden's in complete denial. He's telling this guy, the AP, it's not our fault, everyone's suffering from the same issues. No, they're not. No, they are not. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about his policies are changing people's lives. Well, you know what? I think he got that one right. But they're changing lives for the worse, not better. You got 10% inflation, falling real wages, record gas prices, record grocery prices, no baby formula on the shelves, a crunching, crashing stock market. We'll get to that later in the show, as always. Middle-class retirements are getting killed in the stock market. A couple million people blowing illegally through our border in the South, all this woke education in the classroom, defending the teachers union and labeling parents domestic terrorists, a massive crime wave, the bungling of Afghanistan, all of which gives you a recent Politico poll, only 26% say America is going in the right direction, 74% say they're going in the wrong direction. 
This is a disaster. He continues to try to lie his way through his problems. He continues to try to blame others. He continues making incredible false statements about you know, economic factoids that anybody can look up. Just Google this stuff up. What I'm giving you is you know, nothing fancy. You can get it yourself. And he thinks the whole thing is, you know, he's just being blamed unfairly. But you know what? The buck stops there, right in the White House. He is the president. No decisions can be made unless he signs off. It rests on his shoulders, and the country is in full revolt against his far-left, progressive, woke policies. Big government socialism, Newt Gingrich calls it. I agree. Me? I'm for free market capitalism and price stability and a strong king dollar. We're going to take a break. I want to come back and talk some more about these issues because um, America right now is not happy. This is a happy country. This is an optimistic country, but we've lost our happiness and we've lost our optimism. And that's one of the reasons why the Democrats are going to be replaced in the Congress this November. The cavalry is coming. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back after this brief message. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I want to continue this. So we, he has this interview with the Associated Press. And he just launches a series of whoppers, right? His big federal spending package did not cause inflation. Nobody believes that. He's blaming the oil companies. They're making a fortune. Yeah, they're having a good year. They got slaughtered in 2020. So they came back in 2021 and are still back in 2022. ExxonMobil paid $40 billion in taxes. He says they don't pay their fair share. And, of course, you can't build a refinery. They're closing refineries. We're going to talk to Alex Epstein later in the show about that. Close Because of Biden's environmental restrictions, we are closing refineries, which means we can't refine oil into gasoline at the pump, which is one reason why gas prices are 5 bucks and higher. Series of real bizarre whoppers. But there's one thing he said that I just want to spend a moment on. He's, he told the AP reporter, he said, look, uh, mental health is a problem. Mental health treatment is becoming more and more necessary in America. Blame that on COVID. I don't buy it. Fortunately, COVID is passing by, finally. There's a lot more going on here. I, I want to argue that the reason there are mental health issues, and I don't deny that at all, is there's a sort of collective high anxiety over these issues that I've talked about. Inflation, gas prices, baby formulas, all the, all the failures. That has created high anxiety which, of course, is grating on our mental 
story, our mental situation. The economy is on the front end of a recession. People know this. Real wages are falling. Stock markets are falling big time. That's where the middle class is invested in their retirement fund. People are stressed out. Alcoholism and drug use are up. It's part of this anxiety and being stressed out. It is damaging to our mental health. In times, you know, different times, when most folks are making good money and good jobs and inflation prices are low, easy gas at the pump, supermarket shelves well stocked, that's a happy country. You still have this crime wave. I mean, you read about stuff in New York and L.A. That causes high anxiety. That grates on your mental situation. Biden says recession is not inevitable. Well, yeah, I guess it's not inevitable in some sense. But when you look around at raging inflation and rising interest rates and crashing stock markets, it looks like we're either in a recession or we are in the front end entering into a recession. This is causing stress and anxiety. This president has you know, with his woke policies and his big government socialism and all these failures. What's happened here is it's becoming more and more a welfare state. We are providing welfare money to people not to work. And people really, it sounds good, but I've seen studies. Arthur Brooks, former president of the American Enterprise Institute, he and I used to talk about this a lot. Maybe I'll get him back on the show. Years ago, I interviewed him at a National Review, a big National Review conference. 400 people gave us a standing ovation. Arthur wrote about how folks who are living on welfare assistance are fundamentally not happy. Folks who are working and achieving and seizing opportunities in this great free country of ours, they're happy. Today, we're in the welfare state mode. We're in the big government mode. We're in the central planning mode. We're in the Washington knows best mode, trying to dictate everything we do. Crazy climate change theories, no free speech, freedom of religion under attack, Finally, Biden got around to signing a bill that would add protection for social, uh, for Supreme Court justices and their families. But all of these things combined. That's why we're unhappy. That's why we have stress and anxiety and need mental health assistance. Low self-esteem. It's all wrong way. It's all wrong direction. And it's a serious problem. We went through several years of strong prosperity under my former boss, Donald Trump. I'm not going to say it was perfect, but I'm going to say it was a terrific economy with tax cuts and deregulation and energy independence and low unemployment for minorities. You see now Hispanic voters see this gal won uh, her seat down in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. 
Hispanic lady, a legal immigrant, tremendous story, married to a border agent. That's the America we love. Not allowing millions of people to come across the border in abject lawlessness. I'm just saying that Mr. Biden's efforts to transform this country into some kind of woke, progressive paradise has completely failed in just 18 months. That's why there's more mental health problems. That's why people are in a pessimistic mood. But we will be making big changes come November. The cavalry is coming. On the other side of the break, my dear friend, former Ways and Means House Chairman Kevin Brady is going to talk to me about more on the economy. We are entering into a recession. That causes high anxiety and stress also. I'm Kudlow. We'll be From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And we welcome back to the show a great friend. Congressman Kevin Brady, Republican of Texas. He's the ranking member of the House Ways and Means Committee. He was the chair of that committee for a bunch of years and helped get the uh, Trump tax cuts through Congress back in 2017. Kevin, thank you for your time here on a Saturday morning. We appreciate it, hey, as always. Good, good morning, Larry. I'm actually at the uh, Texas Republican Convention here in Houston. We're wrapping up our final day. Huge, huge crowd, as you'd imagine, and uh in a state where we're just getting crushed by the border crisis mm. uh, in, in a big way. And, of course, families just talk to two young moms, uh, young moms who are, you know, can't find baby formula. Uh, they are spending more money than ever imagined just to live. So it is just like the rest of America. There is a such they're so punished by this Biden economy. It's it's remarkable. You know, I call it it's a high anxiety. It's causing stress in yeah. people everywhere. Biden talks, you know, he gives this interview to the Associated Press and he talks about how mental health problems are rising. Well, yeah, I don't doubt that. Anxiety and stress will do that to you. Yeah, no doubt. And I think, too, he's just seen I saw that interview and it just feels like he's in denial again about Mm -hmm. uh, a looming recession, what brought it on, uh, how punishing it's going to be. It just he just feels to me disconnected from the lives of average Americans. You know, these one-pagers or two-pagers you all are sending out from Ways and Means are just terrific. I want to just Thank compliment you. you. They're so helpful. And Thank you. we got a great team, and we have a great team. Thank you. I'll, I'll let them know that. I mean, I think they're really good. I use them. I download them. I carry them with me. I use them on the TV show. It's terrific stuff. Uh, Kevin, I think we are on the front end of recession. I, I think the data are yeah. showing that. Uh, the Atlanta GDP, Atlanta Fed GDP tracker now is down to zero for Q2. We lost, uh, we were negative one and a half percent in Q1. I don't know what the president's talking about or thinking about. Uh, he is in denial still, Kevin Brady, about large, high government spending causing inflation. And he's yeah. saying, and this is, a, he's saying inflation in the U.S. is, um, lower than it is around the rest of the world there's like every study shows it's not true we are our core inflation rate is running twice as high as the oecd twice as high as the european union countries 
What is he talking about? What world is he living in? I, I don't know. I see him saying that Democrats and ways and means just parrot, you know, that that claim. But but it's patently false. And every study shows we're at least three points high in inflation in Europe, for example. Um, I, I, it is another claim debunked repeatedly, but he still makes it. He still makes it. I know nobody else does, but he does his um, <laughs> his approval rating on the economy and inflation is around 25%, Kevin, 25%. Yeah, Yeah. and and for good reasons. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry, Larry. No, I'm just saying people are not as dumb as he thinks they are. I mean, people know and people seek information, and, you know, that's why his polling numbers are so bad. It is, and it's real-life problems. I I, I love that phrase, the high anxiety, because – Right now, I was looking at that survey last week. Seven out of ten Americans don't believe their paychecks will outpace inflation for the next five years. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. Seven out of ten think this will be – their paychecks will be shrinking for another five years. And then I saw the same time the numbers about people who think they can afford to buy a home has just plummeted. There's just middle-class, first-time homeowners – are just they just don't have any hope right now. I don't know why he thinks more spending, more taxes, uh, you know, no effort to reconnect people to their jobs. But he's still pursuing that build back better in the Senate. You know, I don't know why he thinks doubling down on what got us into this mess is going to get us, get us out of it. Uh, on that point, uh, let me ask you about this. Uh, I have some information. Nobody knows. Is this Joe Manchin negotiating with Chuck Schumer? Now, Joe Manchin did the Lord's work, it seems no to doubt. me, in no saving doubt. America and killing the bill. But nobody exactly knows what he's cooking up with Schumer. Let me – some numbers here, Kevin. Uh, this is from Wall Street guys with Washington offices who have access to, you know, Hill staffers and whatnot. Anyway, the deal they're looking at, uh, 1.6 trillion tax hike, minimum corporate taxes, international taxes, surtaxes on wealthy people, higher taxes on investments, capital gains, and so forth. 1.6 trillion, and all to spend roughly 900 billion, which is 500 billion tax credits for renewables, which we don't need. Enhanced yep. Obamacare subsidies and larger Medicaid coverage. So more entitlements, more Green New Deal, nine hundred billion to be paid for by one point six trillion in higher taxes. Now I don't know what you know about these negotiations, but this, I mean this would make matters substantially worse. And uh, the tax the tax hikes would be devastating. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt. All of that, you know, to me. We have countries, like four, now five countries uh, in the world, lowering their business taxes to fight inflation and to become more competitive. And here we have a president insisting on higher taxes that we know is going to drive more inflation. It's an economic surrender to the rest of the world, including China, at a time we need to be upping our game, and that spending is absolutely uh, frivolous. So I worry that – uh, that they come together on a, quote, slim down version, but it's not slimmed down. Those are more tax hikes 
on Main Street businesses, on investors, on on families, then we cut taxes in 2017. So you're going to reverse, you know, all those gains for paychecks, for the economy, for manufacturing, for jobs here in America with that bill. So we are, Larry, we are still on high alert um, in the House fighting uh, and pushing back against that. And, and I'm not going to take it really sleep well till we know that thing is is properly dead. Is there a uh, is there a Democratic uh, bill in the House that would go along with this? No, I think they're thinking that the Senate would use a reconciliation bill that we that, that the Democrats sent to them and uh, send that back to the House once they cut a deal. Um, and I think they're pushing to try to get this uh, an agreement over the next few weeks so that they can try to get this done before we leave in August. So that's their hope. And uh, although we do hear mixed messages about some people, Democrats in the Senate, dismiss this uh, as being nowhere uh, close. But again, I, I don't. Now is not the time to be complacent if you if you're trying to fight these tax hikes. Nine hundred billion in spending and one point six trillion in taxes. Uh, as Art Lafford taught us, if you tax something, you get less of it. They're, yep. they're going after these tax hikes, Kevin. These are. Um, taxes on production they're taxes on large and small business we yep. already have supply side inflation because of uh over regulation and especially the energy sector yep. this will make the inflation worse there's no question these dollars are going to end up in higher prices and less investment in a time when as we know from the tax uh reform and cuts that that you helped lead uh when we create the right incentives Businesses invested in their workers, in equipment, in technology, uh, all of that. Right now, we need supply-side solutions on inflation. One of them is to, to encourage people to invest more in that in those plants, equipment, technology, you know what I mean, that, that get us out of the supply chain mess, make us more productive. So what we really need is a supply-side anecdote, uh, antidote excuse me, to this inflation, especially as the Fed – begins to get a little more serious uh, about the problem they were in denial about as well. I mean, <clears throat> geez, I hate to say it, but why not make the Trump tax cuts permanent? Yeah. Why, why not roll back the energy regulations? Why not roll back all the business regulations and then have a domestic spending freeze? How about that? That That is that is what ways, <laughs> so ways and means Republicans basically – said exactly that last week when we were challenged about how would you fight inflation. We, we laid out exactly the agenda and solution you just talked about. And one of your other one pages here, Biden's global tax surrender. I mean, he wants various minimum taxes on overseas business income. Higher taxes and fewer jobs for Americans. Windfall for foreign competitors i mean if they put this stupid thing through we will be less competitive we will be yeah. less competitive globally yeah there's no question about it. one it is an economic surrender to europe japan china there's no question about it secondly it neutralizes uh, all the key incentives we have in our tax code for investing for research and development all of that are neutralized they basically caved and didn't protect the u.s tax code they also allow 
uh, foreign governments to take a big bite uh, out of the U.S. tax uh, base by basically allowing them to target American uh, companies for their revenue that they currently paid us. And the final point, my argument is the biggest reason to vote against this, Democrat or Republican, is that this agreement cedes authority over our tax code to foreign countries and foreign accounting organizations. Mm. And so for tax writing committees like Ways and Means that are based in the Constitution, we're essentially giving up our constitutional authority to foreign governments. That makes no sense at all. That's a key point. That's a very key point. And, of course, they're not going to cut tax. No. <laughs> They'll put higher taxes on us, but they're not going to do the same amount to their own companies. This is anti-American stuff, right? I mean, basically, this is anti-American technology firms, anti-American yeah. pharmaceutical firms, and the Bidens are going along with it. In, in, in pushing it, as Secretary Yellen obviously continues to push it, but uh, I, I will tell you, I, you bring back a, an agreement like that, I, I, I predict it dies. Mm -hmm. But we've got to stay on our toes on this, Larry, because there's still there's a last gasp here that uh, continues mm -hmm. to keep us on our toes. All right, Kevin, can I? I got to right. take a quick break. Come right back to you. There's a couple other things so, I want to do. So, Larry, I got a favor to ask you. I've got to yeah. go. Uh, to the because the agenda I'm going down to the floor of the convention oh. uh, to the stage. I apologize. We've got to cut a little short today. All right, no problem. We got through most of it. We got through most okay. of it. Um, good luck at the convention, Kevin Brady, House Ways and Means Committee, uh, a great leader. We will talk some more, folks. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I've got a few more little tidbits to talk about on this tax and spend story. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So one of the things that uh, so Kevin Brady had to go and speak on the floor of the uh, Texas Republican Convention. But I want to pick up one of the things his Ways and Means Committee put out is uh, how much money abortions have cost the U.S. economy now. First of all, not everybody listening is going to agree with my views. I'm a very strong pro-lifer, protect the life of the unborn. I think we need uh, significant restrictions uh, on uh, abortions, certainly uh, limits to the first trimester, which is what a lot of the states are doing, 12, 15-week limits, and that's it. No abortion after that. Again, I, I respect the others who might be listening to this that don't agree with me, but that is my view. Abortion is essentially a moral issue, of course. Of course, only God can create a life. But it's also an economic issue. And that's where this Ways and, committee, Ways and Means Committee report is giving us um, in 2019 alone, that's the last year for data, 
We lost nearly 630,000 unborn lives. And abortion cost the U.S. economy roughly $6.9 trillion. That's about a third of our GDP. Since the Roe v. Wade decision back in 1973, approximately 63 million abortions have occurred in the U.S. And if all these aborted babies had been otherwise carried to term and survived, they would have added nearly 20% to the current U.S. population. And nearly 45 million would be of working age, 18 to 64 years old. So just think about the, the loss of life. And again, this is essentially a moral issue, but it has major economic consequences. There's no telling how much the GDP loss would have been over time. But in 2019 alone, the loss of 630,000 unborn lives has been estimated to cost nearly $7 trillion of lost GDP. Now think of it this way. It is, of course, the younger generations that provide the financing for our senior citizens, for Social Security and Medicare. But because of the loss of lives through abortion, we are falling further and further behind solvency in Social Security and Medicare. Now, there are other reasons for the threat of insolvency. But if you think about it, you know, economies need people. Countries with shrinking populations are no-growth countries. Countries with rising populations are pro-growth countries. I mean, one way to look at GDP over time is you take the rate of increase of the population, which translates to the rate of increase of employment, times productivity, times productivity. In optimal terms, the population should be growing about 2% a year and the productivity should be growing about 2% a year, and that would give you 4% real GDP, which is fantastic, which we had, by the way, nearly 4% uh, for 50 years following World War II. In the last 20 years plus, we've slumped to under 2% growth. Now, some of that is because of bad policies. But part of that is the extraordinary, inhumane loss of lives through abortions. So you've got a relatively smaller number of children being born to care for their elderly parents. And that, of course, adds more pressure to Social Security and Medicare insolvency pressures. I mean, those things are funded by the wages of Americans who are working through payroll taxes, the so-called Social Security payroll tax and the Medicare payroll tax. The loss of, the loss of, of these lives is a moral blot, in my view. But it has 
massive negative economic consequences. So we needn't, we mustn't lose sight of that. The morality is awful, difficult, awful. Championing the unborn is, in my opinion, such a worthy, worthy cause. But the economics of it are just as bad. I'm not going to say the economics are worse. God creates children. Only God creates children. We should not be going against his will. But as an economist, I'm just saying, think of these financial consequences. We need to be growing our population. We need to be bringing these unborn kids. They are, they are children. You can see them. Sonograms show it. Bring them to term. Bring them to life. In our free country, with our free economy, the opportunities, let them have the opportunities that makes this great country even greater and greater and greater down through the generations. We're going to get a Supreme Court decision on this, but I think whatever happens in the Supremes, the trend is towards more restrictions on abortion. I mean, I think you see so many of these states limiting abortions, restricting abortions to the first trimester. Call it three months, 13 weeks. I see some states are 12 weeks, some states go to 15 weeks, and so forth. And I also see opinion polls, and this is encouraging, you know, if you ask somebody, are you pro-choice, they'll say yes, by a small margin, I might add, relative to being pro-life. But when you then ask about restrict, do you want unlimited abortions? They say no. No, we want restrictions. And running through the third trimester, so-called partial birth, is very, very unpopular. And, you know, that gives me hope. That gives me optimistic hope that um, the loss of life is very, very unpopular now. Some states will go to uh, second trimester restriction. As I say, many states go into first trimester. If the Supreme Court, I mean, I'm going through this. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a jurist. I don't know how this Roe v. Wade thing's going to work out. I think you're going to get a decision in the next week or two from the Supremes. I know we had the leak of the Alito, so-called Alito, Sam Alito's uh, draft decisions, which would uh, turn Roe v. Wade back and would give the states the authority. I think the states should always have had the authority. A social policy like this, without any legislation coming from Washington, coming from the Congress... These should be turned back to the states. And there's no question, most states, not, not the big blue states, but most states are putting restrictions on abortions. And that is a good thing. That is God's work. But it's also pro-growth. We need folks to work in our economy. 
and to build great opportunities in America. It's what makes us great. We'll take a short break here, folks, and on the other side, we're going to go back to the oil patch in Midland, Texas. We need more refineries to produce more gasoline to bring down gas prices, and the Bidens won't do it. They will not do it. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Uh, Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We've got some breaking news. Uh, Joe Biden falls off his bike as he rides near his uh, Rehoboth, Delaware beach home. This is from the New York Post. President Biden took a tumble off his bike. Secret Service agents swarmed around him. I'm good, Biden said, telling pool reporters that he had trouble taking his biking shoes out of the pedals as he tried to stop and chat with well-wishers. Let me look further down this story. That's all we know. So we will follow that story. Look, I may disagree with his uh, policies and so forth, but I don't want the guy to get hurt. Anyway, the options are not good if you were to be badly hurt. So we we will try to cover this if any more news breaks. Now, we will turn back to the uh, energy crisis in the United States with $5 gasoline and the whole issue of uh, Biden's Green New Deal stopping the very refineries that are necessary to turn oil into gasoline. We're a million barrels short, and the refineries are being closed because of strict environmental restrictions. So we welcome to the show Alex Epstein, founder and president of the Center for Industrial Progress, creator of the EnergyTalkingPoints.com, and the author of Fossil Future. Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. Uh, Alex, welcome to the program. This is such a bizarre story now with Biden, of course, blaming inflation and gas prices on the energy companies, the fossil companies themselves. Um, I talked to Mike Summers yesterday on the TV show, Alex. He's the head of the American Petroleum Institute. a, th- a third of our existing refineries have been stopped in the last two years because of uh, rabid environmental restrictions. I don't know if Biden understands you can't have it both ways. If you want to end fossil fuels, you're going to have skyrocketing energy prices. Now he's blaming the oil companies. Uh, well, they're stuck because refi- we haven't built a refinery since the 70s. And either we've had to close them down or some of these states, Alex, like California, are providing restrictions and mandates so they have to produce non-gasoline fuels. I mean, it's a crazy story. What do you think? I think it's a really simple situation that, that you really nailed. And it's what's happening is the people responsible for the problem are trying to deny it by adding all of this misleading complexity. So the simple situation is for 15 years, we've had a global movement to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. Joe Biden has obviously been a leader in that movement. That movement has been political. It's also been corporate slash financial with the ESG movement. And what happened is, in so we've been suppressing investment, suppressing production, suppressing refining, suppressing transportation. And then after the pandemic or during the pandemic, there was this idea, oh, we don't need fossil fuels anymore. And so that intensified the efforts further. But of course, we did need fossil fuels because unreliable solar and wind are not viable near-term replacements. And so demand went up. 
and supply couldn't keep pace. So essentially, we've artificially restricted the supply of fossil fuels and prices have gone up. And Biden is upset about that, even though that was his plan. He ran on, I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel. But he doesn't like the popularity consequences or rather the unpopularity consequences. But it's, it's really simple. He and his movement caused this, but they don't like being unpopular. And so they're blaming everyone but themselves, even though they're obviously responsible. We are. It's funny. These policies, these Green New Deal policies, Alex, they're cutting, wait, closing refineries, point number one. And number two, a point that Mike Summers of the API said yesterday on the TV show, um, some of these states, especially California, but not only California, uh, New York, I think, is guilty of this, too, maybe some others, uh, they are mandating that refineries refine for non-gasoline uh, projects, uh, some of which are uh, ethanol, some of which uh, are wind and so forth. In other words, you, they're not letting them refine. So we're at least a million barrels a day equivalent short of gasoline. So if you're short supply... And you know the economy's demand is very significant, among other reasons, because of massive federal spending and money printing. Well, gee whiz, high demand, low supply equals higher prices. Did I get that right? Higher prices. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to make this any harder than it needs to be. That, yeah, that's that's definitely right. But the, the one thing I would say is it's it's broader than refining. So what the Biden administration keeps doing is they keep trying to find another villain that's not them. So, the, And we could go into any of these fallacies. But they talk about, oh, there's these 9,000 leases that, for some reason, oil companies don't want to make up. So that's the fallacy. There's uh, – make money on, rather. There's price gouging. There's windfall profits. There's all these things. And now they're picking up on refining. But the, the basic thing is the whole supply chain has been suppressed by their movement. And what's really needed is for them to reverse course and say, no, we support fossil fuel development we make a long-term commitment, and as I said on your show, that requires withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. There's no mm. way to square rapidly eliminating fossil fuels by 2050 with supplying the world with the fossil fuels it clearly needs. So you've got also this related issue, Alex, of denying fossil companies any money, any capital, any loans. Uh, the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, has put out a multi-thousand-page uh, rulemaking that essentially tells investors do not put any money in fossil companies. So that's another killer deal breaker. And that's at the root of it, right, because that's the investment. And, yeah, so this whole ESG movement. So one way to think of this is – it's not just the U.S. I mean, globally, we're close to an energy emergency. We're certainly in an energy crisis. It's not just gasoline prices. We have threats of blackouts around the country. We have skyrocketing fuel prices around the world. We have skyrocketing food prices around the world, which is getting really scary. And so in a time of emergency, you need to stop all the things that are leading to the emergency. So these, these climate regulations, SEC, need to immediately be suspended and reverse. We need to be stopping the whole anti-fossil fuel movement. Look at what the Democrats in Congress are doing. They're doing new anti-fossil fuel uh, initiatives every day. So this is not a serious uh, response. What we need is, as I 
talk about in my book, Fossil Future, we need to embrace that the future is going to be fossil fueled. And that's a good thing because billions of people need low cost, reliable energy. And there's no way to provide it on a global scale for the next 30 years mm. without a lot of fossil fuels. How much uh, right now, Alex, uh, of the distribution of energy, how much are fossils and how much are uh, wind and solar? Most people have no idea about this. So fossil fuels are 80% hmm. and they're still growing. Hmm. And, and solar and wind are 3%, but that hmm. only provides electricity and electricity is about 20% of the world's energy. And it's totally dependent on reliable, controllable sources mostly fossil fuels, but also nuclear and hydro. So solar and wind today are not self-sufficient forms of energy that can just scale. They're parasitical forms of energy because they need 100% backup all the time. And um, ironically, solar and wind farms are environmentally very bad, at least in terms of conservation. They're awful. They destroy the landscape. Well, in, in a sense, yes. I mean, you have to acknowledge that they take a lot. They take up a lot of space because solar and wind are dilute forms of energy in addition to being intermittent or unreliable. And that requires also huge amounts of mining. And, and part of the hypocrisy of the green movement is to say we support solar and wind, but we're against impacting the earth. Mm. But if you're against impacting the earth, how can you be for record amounts of mining, huge amounts of transmission lines, uh, certainly interfering with all these birds when you're talking about wind turbines? And so in the green energy movement is a contradiction, and they're not really for energy. They don't actually support these things because they're hostile to mining. So what they want to do is shut down fossil fuels without even the attempt at a replacement. That's what Biden did, right? He shut down the pipeline. He shut down new leases. He didn't have a replacement. But he just wanted to shut down fossil fuels and then pretend that there's a replacement that would work right. and that he would support. And neither is true. And you can't get a permit. You may have a lease, but you can't get a permit because of the EPA regulations. I mean, it's the most bizarre story I've ever heard. Alex Epstein, thank you very much. Uh, founder and president of the Center for Industrial Progress. His recent book is called Fossil Future. Alex, we'll talk some more about this. Thanks for coming on. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to talk to a former Federal Reserve governor. What is the story about the Fed and higher interest rates and inflation? I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to turn to the Federal Reserve and their raise in interest rates. And the economy is already on the front end of a recession and inflation is very high. The Fed's going to try to stop it. We will see. So we bring in an old friend, Robert Heller, who was a former Federal Reserve governor appointed by Ronald Reagan in the middle 1980s, former president and CEO of Visa. And he's still kicking around. Bob Heller, welcome uh, back. You know, you said on the TV show last night, uh, you mentioned a double dip recession. And I wanted to, you know, things happen fast on live cable TV, and I'm not sure I processed all that, and we ran out of time. Uh, tell me what you're thinking about the threat of a double dip recession. Well, Larry, it's good to be with you again. Uh, I think it's a real threat because at the current time, we are already just about at the cusp of a recession. First quarter, as you know, had a negative growth of 1.5%. The current quarter is forecast by the Atlanta Fed GDP now numbers to be totally flat. 
So two quarters of negative growth uh, would technically get us into a recession. Now, the economy is still very strong, as you have pointed out. We have good employment numbers. So the Federal Reserve has to continue to raise interest rates. But they're way behind the curve. So they will have to raise interest rates into the coming year, the second half of the year. And once those higher interest rates start to bite, the economy will certainly slow down. That's the intent of the whole uh, procedure. So if we have to, if we have a mini recession in the first half of this year at the present time, then we may well have another recession caused by the Fed late this year or early next year, and that would be a double dip. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, a mini recession now, and then they're going to have to keep crunching. So that's an interesting point. Yeah, yesterday, uh, Bob Heller, the, um, uh, Jay Powell is speaking someplace, and he said the Fed promises unconditional approach to taking down recession. Unconditional approach. Uh I guess what I'm asking is... inflation, I think you meant to say, right? Yes. I'm sorry, to taking down inflation. I beg your pardon. You're exactly right. Um, Do you buy it? I mean, he's saying they'll do whatever it takes to knock down inflation. Do you buy that? Well, he's trying to be a... a, do do a draggy here, if I may say so. Mm. He says, you know, uh, we will do whatever it takes. Uh, and I think it's good to have some results because the Federal Reserve has had very little results, very little spine in the last few years. But now it's a whole new Federal Reserve. We have four new governors there uh, pretty soon, and uh, it's, it's going to be a whole new ball game. And uh, Powell will have to be a very, very strong leader to have these Biden appointments. Uh, with him in causing a recession just as the election season are approaching. I wonder, this is a point made by uh, Larry Summers uh, well over a year ago. And Summers said that, that his concern was that the new, the new generation of central bankers, which is what you're talking about, get these new appointees coming to the Fed, they're more concerned about woke social policies and climate change than they're concerned about inflation and price stability. Is that what you're getting at? Uh, that is certainly a very big problem. You see, the new generation of economists and central bankers has grown up in a period of hard-won price stability. The last 30 years have been great as far as price stability is concerned. The Fed has been sitting there saying, hey, we want higher inflation. We, want, we don't want zero inflation. We want 2% at least. So uh, these people, they, they had a wonderful life. Uh, and to <laughs> have to fight inflation now is something totally new and unaccustomed to them. Back in the 80s, we did have a double-dip recession. But don't forget, Larry, you know what the... Uh, Fed funds rate was at the end of 1980, it was 22%, hmm. astronomical for hmm. our uh, circumstances. And we certainly hope not to have to go back to that kind of medicine. But the question is, will this new gang 
have the backbone. It may not be 22%, but do they have the backbone? You know, to keep raising rates 75 basis points or 100 basis points every meeting until we get inflation down. I mean, that's what I'm asking. The C- We had the new numbers, as you know, the new inflation numbers in May on a 12-month change, the uh, consumer price index, 8.6%, and the producer price index, 10.8%. And by the way, on that PPI, Bob Heller, if you looked at it from the standpoint of the old methodology, the old finished goods PPI is 16.7%. So these are still very big numbers. Um, I don't know about this theory from Wall Street about peak inflation. I'm not convinced we've seen the peak of inflation. I fully agree with you. There's more in the pipeline, and the same kind of statistical bias is in the uh, consumer price index because they have the rental equivalent of housing in there. As we all know, prices have gone up enormously for houses and for rental properties. So, but they haven't fed in yet into the rent that people charge. So prices went up the last two years for new houses. If somebody wants to rent it, they still have a lease or something like that on it. And as the, uh, you know, people have to recover their purchase prices. So uh, they will have to increase rents, and that will be an enormous increase for the consumer price index. By the end of the year, we will see consumer prices above 10%, I would predict. Mm. So in terms of the Fed funds rate, um, they got a long ways to go. That's what you're saying. A, a long ways to go because presumably you want the nominal funds rate to be above the inflation rate. I mean, right now, real interest rates are big, you know, very, very negative, and that is not going to bring inflation down. You got it exactly right. We are still in a stimulative monetary policy with negative real interest rates, and we got to get to a restrictive policy. And that will mean another three, four, maybe 500 basis points of the mm-hmm. Fed funds rate at least. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at the other side of the coin, the Fed's balance sheet, the monetary base. They're just beginning now to allow runoffs of their uh, bond and mortgage holdings. Uh, M2 has slowed uh, from about 25% growth. Uh, over the last two years, it's grown by 40% some odd. But it's gone down from about 25% growth, but it's still growing at about 8.5%. So they're going to have to rein in what we used to call the monetary base in order to get M2 down, in order to get inflation down. I mean, that's another side of this uh, of this issue. Absolutely. And uh, as you pointed out, we have made good progress, but 25% money M2 increases that we have seen in the past, I mean, they were insane. And they were the... Uh, the the ignition for all the inflationary pressures that we see at the present time. To grow the money supply 25% two years in a row, it was a prescription for an inflationary disaster. And that is what's rolling out now with the, with the long and variable legs that Milton Friedman always talked about. Right, right, long and variable, that's right. And the other, the other one is the commodity price indexes. 
I'm as, I've been following these CRB futures, Bob Heller, mm-hmm. and uh, so that includes gold, it includes energy, it includes metals, industrials, and agriculture. Now, that index is down about 5 or 6%, but that's all. And it had an incredible run-up over the past couple of years. So my point is, I don't see that much progress if you look at it from a standpoint of a commodity price rule. Well, we, we are a long ways away from seeing the positive effects of commodity price decreases. It's difficult, as also your previous guest pointed out, these days it's difficult to get oil into production. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> you talked about solar. Half a year ago, I made a contract with Tesla to build me a solar roof. They cannot build it. They don't have the material. They tell me we can't even give you a date when we may get around to do it. So how are we going to solve the energy problems when we, uh, when we can't even build the electrical infrastructure that we want to build? Uh, All right. It, it, we'll, it, we'll leave it there. Robert Heller, former Federal Reserve governor, great friend. We've got a lot more to do on the Fed. Folks, we'll take a break here. When we come back, we're going to talk to Wall Street Journal columnist, the great Holman Jenkins, more about this energy story and a few other tidbits as well. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're trying to track down my pal Holman Jenkins, Wall Street Journal columnist. Uh, we'll see if we can get him back or not. Uh, I want to just walk through um, some of the things that Holman has been writing. We we talked about this on the Fox Business Show, Cudlow, I guess two days ago with former Speaker of the House, uh, Paul Ryan, uh, who is a smart guy. He doesn't like Trump on some matters, but on the economy, he and Trump tend to be very similar. Paul's an old friend of mine. He's a supply sider. Anyway, what we were talking about was um, the need to balance the budget. And Holman wrote this column, which drew my attention to it in the, in the beginning. The, the point is, we're having an incredible pressure which I think is a breakdown of the welfare state, all right? The welfare state has gotten so out of hand. And by the way, Joe Biden and his policies want to expand the welfare state. We've talked about this. There's no uh, work requirements. There's no work fair uh, in all the various smaller entitlements, uh, such as welfare and food stamps and various child allowances and unemployment uh, benefits. We're paying people not to work. We're providing federal assistance in a significant way, but it's not tied to work, as it was during the mid-90s when Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton uh, were able to hammer out welfare reform. That welfare reform, which was tremendously successful in getting people back to work, the key point was... If you're on welfare and you're able-bodied, you have to look for work, otherwise no assistance. And they set strict time limits on going back to work. Those have been removed by the Biden administration. 
And I think, incidentally, I said at the top of the show, with this whole issue that Biden raised in his AP uh, interview, that, um, you know, mental health care is on the rise. Well, yeah, part of that, of course, is, you know, inflation and gas prices and crime and other things that have gone wrong in society. Part of this is... um, a function of the fact that people are, too many people are living on welfare, which makes them unhappy and causes stress and anxiety. The work was done by the great Arthur Brooks years ago at the American Enterprise Institute. People living on welfare are unhappy. People who are working are happy. And it's not just a question of how much money you're making. It's just work breeds a certain happiness sort of positive outlook, you feel good, you have self-esteem, whereas if you're living on the government dole, you don't. You're not happy. You don't have self-esteem. And it's replaced by a lot of stress and anxiety. Now, I think that's common sense. But again, this work was done quantitatively by Arthur Brooks. I mean, looked at tens of thousands of examples. Now, What Holman Jenkins talked about is the impending breakdown of this welfare state. Some numbers. All right. The federal debt is running upwards, according to the Congressional Budget Office, running upwards of 125% of GDP. That's like World War II. We've never had anything like this before. I've never been a big debt monger myself, but I've never seen debt this high. Okay. And he breaks it down into some important numbers where in terms of the large, the so-called large major entitlements, 75 million Americans get some combination of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. That's 75 million people. Then we have 98 million people who are getting what's called the smaller entitlements which is veterans' benefits, college aid, rental assistance, Obamacare, food stamps, welfare, etc., etc. 75 million get Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. 98 million get various forms of Obamacare, welfare, food stamps, etc., etc. All right, that's a lot. All right, it's 100, you know, in round numbers, 175 million people getting government assistance. And these transfer payments are funded by deficits, chronic deficits. There's no pay for. We're not even remotely looking at a pay for. And so that is a crisis of the welfare state. That is a crisis of big government socialism. That is a crisis of the progressives' view of the economy. They want income redistributionism. They don't want growth. They want um, equity, not opportunity. They are arguing that equal opportunity at the starting line, which is mandated by our laws, is not sufficient. 
We have to have equal opportunity, equal results, equal outcomes at the finish line. And to do that, they want to redistribute income, essentially taking from Peter to pay Paul. Well, that is an anti-growth, anti-opportunity, anti-investment, anti-innovation, anti-creativity, socialism, you know? And what you have is you wind up getting a lot of equality. People will be equally poor. That's where this is going to lead. And you can look at the state of the economy today. All the government spending has done is, you know, get us to 10% inflation. And we're on the front end of a recession, as Robert Heller just mentioned. And there may be a double-dip recession because the Federal Reserve is going to have to be fighting inflation for the next several years, and interest rates are going to go a lot higher. Now, if interest rates go higher, I won't say if, when interest rates go higher, the federal government's interest bill will balloon from $400 billion presently to over a trillion dollars. That will add to the debt-to-GDP ratio, and none of this is financed except by borrowing more. And, of course, borrowing more will put a lot of pressure on the Federal Reserve to buy the bonds and literally print more money, which is inflationary. So you get the picture. Now, the budget can be balanced. The interesting part of my conversation with former House Speaker Paul Ryan the other night uh, on our show, Cudlow, the interesting thing is it has been done in the past. Strict caps on government spending has been done in the past. We had it going back to the late 80s when Phil Graham, former Senator Phil Graham, who who comes on this show a lot, he's a dear friend, he's a mentor, he had uh, something called Graham, Rudman, Hollings, where they set strict caps on domestic spending, and if you violated those caps, there would be an across-the-board budget sequester. In other words, you'd cut spending across the board. That would be the penalty. That would be the punishment for breaking the caps. That's been tried. uh, It was tried in the 90s, too. The combination of high economic growth and spending caps uh, not only led us to a balanced budget in the late 90s, again, under Gingrich and Clinton, We had um, big government uh, budget surpluses, believe it or not. We were paying down debt for a while. It's quite remarkable. But we haven't had that in the last 20 years. And what we have had is a big expansion of the welfare state. And uh, Joe Biden would like to continue that expansion. He just said um, yesterday, as I said earlier in this show, he said, look, Federal spending doesn't cause inflation. What did he say? He said that's a bizarre notion. Well, no, federal spending does cause inflation. Government's giving folks all kinds of money. They're not working and producing to pay for it. That creates an increase in overall demand in the economy. And meanwhile, high tax rates hold down supply. They hold down investment. The Trump tax cuts, particularly the corporate tax cuts, provided tremendous economic growth and opportunity for all people, 
particularly minorities, who went back to work. Lower tax bills for corporations provided more money to pay higher wages to middle-class, blue-collar folks. Real wages went up. So we have to have a combination, okay? We need a combination of spending caps. I call it a freeze on domestic spending. Accompanied by making the Trump tax cuts permanent so we have the incentives to produce goods and services and pay the middle-income folks who are suffering from inflation, pay them higher wages for living standards for their families. All right, so Trump tax cuts, spending freeze, and deregulation. Deregulate energy, not re-regulate. And deregulate business. Stop the war against business and stop the war against fossil fuels. And that can deliver 4% growth, and we will then add workfare to the welfare system, and then we'll have a much better chance of closing the gap of 125% of debt to GDP. That's the solution. We need a balanced budget plan, but it has to be a pro-growth balanced budget plan. Otherwise, the welfare state's going to break down, and we will find ourselves in dire financial consequences. And frankly, the next Congress and the next president is going to have to face all of this. All right, let me stop. We're going to take a quick break. And the other side of the break, my good friend Grover Norquist, who knows taxes as well as anybody. Uh, what about this alleged deal between Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, which would spend more and tax more and devastate the economy? I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks, and we welcome back to the show Grover Norquist, dear friend, founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, I don't know if you know, I don't know what any of us know, but I am reading from uh, good sources that this Manchin-Schumer deal... Uh, is still alive. And some numbers that I saw from our pal Dan Clifton, uh, Jim Lucier's though, writing the same thing. Uh, these guys know what they're looking at. Anyway, some of the numbers are a $1.6 trillion tax hike, Grover, a tax hike predominantly on business and investment and foreign income. And it's all to finance... Uh, Another Green New Deal, renewables, $500 billion in renewables, uh, more Obamacare uh, and other nicks and knacks, $900 billion worth of spending, $1.6 trillion in higher taxes. Uh, it's not what I would call a fabulous idea. I don't know what you know about it, but what would happen if it ever went through? <clears throat> if it went through, it would be a disaster because it does everything that you say it will. Uh, they're looking to do the taxes later, i.e. not between now and November. Uh, then they'll wink and a nod to some of the business guys and lie to them and say, maybe this won't happen if you guys 
allow yourself to be unionized. Maybe it won't happen if you do what we want. Maybe it won't happen if you give us an extra billion dollars to save the House and the Senate. So you pass a tax increase X number of years out, $1.6 trillion, much of it on businesses, and then say to the businessman, you can get out from under that. Here's what it'll cost you. A lot less than $1.6 trillion. Uh, that's not impossible. And I think when you look at the Democrats sitting around a table, we were always told, and this is public information, that Cinema of Arizona, the senator from Arizona, uh, said no, nothing more than $1.1 trillion in taxes and no corporate rate increases. You could do other stuff to corporations, but not rate increases. She has claimed that. She has put it in, in writing. She has said it out loud. The president said it. It was supposed to be a secret, but he said it at a meeting because he doesn't always pay attention. Uh, Manchin's number was $1.5 trillion in taxes, but half of it had to go in, quote-unquote, deficit reduction. So the numbers that they're talking about now don't fit what Manchin – and Manchin said no taxes on energy. So, look, Manchin is not a moderate. He's a liberal Democrat, pro-union, pro-trialer, liberal Democrat, big spender in – a red state that voted overwhelmingly for Trump. Uh, if he votes for something that's this massive a tax increase and massive Green New Deal spending, it'll probably have some bailout for some of the people in West Virginia, but those don't last forever. Uh, and someday the Democrats will cut that stuff off because they're not particularly interested in that issue. Manchin will have, he's very popular in West Virginia because he's the guy who said no to Biden. If he ceases to be the guy who says no to Biden, I don't know how he returns to the state. He said when he ran for office, I would never vote for a tax increase until I was convinced it was all being spent wisely. Can he look to people of West Virginia in the eye and say that's true now? He's, he's throwing away his political career to do this. I, you know, anybody who's not getting part of the, you know, the, some of the cash thrown at them is going to be disappointed that he didn't keep his word to hold the line against massive spending increases. And, of course, uh, our friend... I mean, there are a whole bunch of people who – Jean Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, mm. she votes for a massive tax increase. New Hampshire, it matters to people in New Hampshire because it gets cold in the summer. They, they used to get – maybe they still get subsidies for oil and uh, – for home heating oil because it gets so cold up there and they're lower-income people. Uh, a government policy to keep energy prices high. Maggie Hassan is already running behind. Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly – has been hiding behind the skirts of uh, cinema, uh, voting left wing on everything. But if he jumps out publicly on this and votes for a massive tax increase and a massive spending increase and massive taxes on businesses, Manchin can vote for taxes on businesses. They don't have any Fortune 500 companies in West Virginia. They've got about eight in Arizona, which is why Cinnamon has been smart enough to say, I'm not going to tolerate that. Mark Kelly has no street cred. This, this is a death sentence for him trying to get reelected in, in Arizona. I don't know how they thought this through. I, I understand the, look, the spending interest, there's a trillion dollars on the table, depending on who you believe. There's at least a trillion in taxes and spending, and you've got competing parasites around the table trying to decide how to spend other people's money. And they're going to kick each other under the table, but at some point when it gets down to there's something in front of everybody – it's not what you wanted, but if you don't take it, it disappears after the election. Mm. I think they can take the $1 trillion somehow. I would be surprised if they can't agree. Mm. Well, that's good. Look, it's all good. I, I don't know. There's a couple of things I don't get here. First of all, 
you know, Manchin got high marks uh, for beating back uh, the original Build Back Better. Why, Grover, why would he want $500 billion of additional spending on renewables? He's from a fossil state, for goodness sakes. Why does he want to raise taxes for renewable energy? That doesn't help West Virginia. West Virginia's coal. West Virginia's oil and gas. I don't get it. Uh, he's thinking, if I put these coal miners on welfare, uh, then they'll be just as happy as if they had jobs. I don't mm. think he understands. I think he's wrong about that. I think it's insulting to the people of West Virginia that they would rather have their jobs and their children's jobs destroyed with the promise of welfare. I mean, they'll call it something fancy, but it's welfare. Uh, we're going to pay you not to do things uh, because we're taking away your livelihood. And the fact that he's doing this on behalf of New York City and San Francisco people who like to ride bicycles uh, – he's not representing the people of West Virginia, nor their kids, nor their future, if he cuts a deal that looks anything like what's on the table and what the left in the Democratic Party insists on. Grover, um, they're talking about using reconciliation. Now, reconciliation rules, you're, you're saying that they won't, the tax piece will be what, put on paper like a plug? And, but it won't actually be – they won't actually pass tax legislation until way later? I don't oh, think no, that – No, they pass it – no, they pass it now to take effect later. They oh. can spend as much deficit as they want now for the next 10 years under reconciliation. But then after the 10 years, the only spending that's permanent, okay, would be the spending that's matched with tax increases or permanent spending cuts some, some other way. Uh, so – they can have a massive deficit for the next X number of years. Uh, the Republican quote-unquote deficit under Trump was about one, one $1.2 $1. that we cut taxes and allowed spending to be too high for 10 years. After that, the only parts of the Trump tax cut that continue are the ones that were quote-unquote paid for, and that's the corporate income tax is a big part of that and some other things. We need to make the rest of it permanent. So they'll put tax increases matching spending increases at the 10-year period. I mean, you could do 5, 7, or 10, but people have been doing 10 recently. So you figure 10. So ten year, they'll spend, spend, spend for 10 years, and they just hope nobody focuses on in 10 years, massive tax increases hit. Oh, and by the way, they are matched with massive spending increases that are then permanent. The mm-hmm. reason for the tax increases is to make the spending increases permanent. Mm-hmm. So Manchin's, you know, he's been in an so he says he's been an inflation hawk and he's argued again and again that higher spending causes inflation. Uh, this is spending on renewables. This is spending on Obamacare and other stuff. I mean, what doesn't he think that argument still holds? The reason you have to spend money for renewables is you have to subsidize wind and solar or they don't work. They are not cost effective. You cannot go to the store and buy wind and solar with your own money because you can't get enough energy out of it. So you have to have a subsidy in order to make it work. And that means if you what the Democrats are trying to do is create an entire industry, not with guys from Texas and North Dakota and Pennsylvania and Colorado who are out finding oil and natural gas and creating wealth for people who are Republicans, but people who are subsidized industries who come to Washington for cash and make contributions on that basis. All right. 
Grover Norquist, American Tax Reform. That's a great, Grovey, that's a great, it's a great rundown. I really hope you're right. Things never going to happen. Thanks for chipping in. We appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to do some stock market work on the other side of the break. Stocks are not a happy story right now. Please stay with us. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you, as always, every Saturday. Join us during the week. Fox Business Network, name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, every day. And incidentally, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com. Plays all across the country around the world, even throughout the solar system, no question. So we're going to look at the stock market. It's not a terrific story. It's not really a terrific story. The Dow Jones was off 1,504 points. The S&P was down 226. Broad S&P 500 is off 23.4%. Uh, since the high of January 3rd. By the way, with about a 10% wholesale price index, you could add that on, so you're down over 30% in real terms. And um, nobody's real happy about that. And it looks like we are in a genuine bear market. How long it lasts, how to play it, I don't know. I don't know, stocks for the long run, but... The long run is going to be the long run. Anyway, let's ask our experts. We have Stephanie. We have Stephanie Link, chief investment strategist with Hightower Investors and head of investment solutions, and Joe Lavornia, who was a former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council. So, kids, welcome back. Joe Lavornia, you must be in a great mood because. The uh, GDP tracker for the Atlanta Fed has got zero in Q2. Minus 1.5 was the first quarter. Uh, you've been calling for a recession. Well, it looks I, like you're you going to get one. Larry, <laughs> aren't you happy? I, no, I'm very, I'm very happy that I get to spend part of my Saturday with you and Stephanie. Oh. And uh, I, I am an optimist, but I also have to call things the way I see it. And the economy is very weak. And look. I understand this notion of the Fed being behind the curve. Uh, the problem is the Fed waited way too long to move interest rates and the balance sheet. They've financialized the economy, which is another way of saying they made asset markets way too expensive given the trajectory of corporate profits. And we're in the worst of all possible worlds because we've got this high inflation, which is demand destructive. The Fed needs to go even more. And the equity market is responding negatively because of that. But, yes, unfortunately, we are going to get a recession. But the good news is with the right policies uh, starting perhaps uh, early next year or at least less bad policies, the economy and the markets will recover. We're just not there yet. You know, I want to follow through on this before I get to Steph. I had Robert Heller on, former Federal Reserve governor, uh, Reagan appointee years ago. Very, very smart guy. Uh, Joe, he's talking about a double dip. Now, what he means by that is that um, the first half of the year will be a recession, uh, probably a lighter recession, 
easier recession, almost a technical one. But then he said, inflation is going to last. It's going to be difficult, durable. He thinks inflation by the end of this year could still be around 10%. And then that means the Fed is going to have to keep on raising rates and shrinking its uh, balance sheet for quite some time and that that will lead to a much deeper second recession probably next year. What do you think? There, uh, I'm, I'm sort of almost in the same zip code on that in the sense, Larry, that I expect inflation to moderate at some point. But more importantly, the Fed will react to a worsening labor market, a further seizing up of credit markets, which are getting significantly worse, lower stock prices. And that could embed an inflation bias more into the system. So you have what you remember at the stop go, easing mm. and tightening of the 70s and 80s. And that would be consistent, I think, with what Rob is saying in terms of there being kind of a, a, you know, a downturn, a modest improvement, but then another down lake because the inflation becomes more ingrained. ingrained. That, that's certainly a risk. Yeah. Well, all right, Stephanie, you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And yes, and I'm going to just say um, hats off to Joe, who nailed this. Um, he was much more concerned about the macro environment uh, than many of us um, well before uh, people were talking about this. So congrats to him. I'm sorry that you're right, Joe, because it really hurts at this point in terms of the, what's happening uh, in, the, in the economy. I think this past week, we basically went from a Fed that we knew what, what they were going to have to be aggressive and thinking 50-50-50 in terms of basis points tightening in June, July, and then September. And now all of a sudden we have a 75, which you know got leaked out, which was nuts in itself. And now, now it looks like another 75. And the odds are increasing that you're going to see another 75 in the September meeting. Here's what I don't. Here's what I have a hard time reconciling, though. The Fed is expecting 2023 targets of unemployment to be 3.9 percent. That's still very a very solid number, but they're also saying that core inflation is going to be 2.7 percent. I don't know how they get there. And oh, by the way, Larry, you and I have talked about this endlessly. We're not focusing on core inflation. We're talking about inflation because we eat for a living and we eat every day and we have to have to fill our tanks every day. So I look at absolute the overall inflation environment, and it is going to stay elevated for quite some time. Um, but the fact is that they're getting more aggressive into a slower economy and they are going to lead us into a recession if they continue at this rate. I don't know if it's this year, though. I'm still in the camp of really, really slow growth this year, but not recession growth because the job market is still so strong. Now, I know it is starting to roll, but you still have 11.4 million jobs opening out there. Um, and that, might, that will come down, but I still think that will be enough to carry slower growth. But 2023, I think you know, the, the, uh, the odds of a recession have gone up quite substantially. What's the um, earnings outlook? What's the profits profits of the mother's milk of stocks? What does that stuff look like, Stephanie? Yeah, so uh, 8 to 10% so far for this year. Um, mm. And maybe that's high, right, given what's happening in inflation. I think the second quarter is really going to be critical in terms of the guidance that we get. But focus on companies that have pricing power that can offset the inflation, right? So that's why energy stocks have done so well this year. That's why material stocks have done so well this year because they're printing ca- – I mean, cash is – the free cash flow is huge. And so while they are small parts of the overall market, 
uh, they are certainly where the momentum is at. But I think, to your point, this has been a year of multiple contraction. We've gone from 21.6 times forward estimates to now 15.5 times. The mm. question is, do you believe that E, right, in the P.E.? Uh, and uh, that's what we're all kind of uh, we're, we're wondering and, and waiting on. So you're, it's, it's a very tricky environment. You have to it's a kind of a stock pickers market at this point. Special situations, restructuring stories, quality, free cash flow, good balance sheets, that kind of thing. Uh, but I still think over the long term, your the S&P 500 total return is on average 10 percent per year. Right. So we're, we're mean reverting this year. But I do think we can get back to the long term trajectory of 10 percent. And that's that's pretty attractive, again, for the long term. You know, Joe, energy is outperformed for obvious reasons. But um, after listening to Joe Biden and his discussions with ExxonMobil and Chevron and the rest of that industry, Bolero, I don't know. I think he's going to bring in 20,000, 30,000 National Guard troops to Midland, Texas, and just take them over. It's like Hugo Chavez. It's going to nationalize all companies, and that'll end yeah. the stock. That'll end the stock market once and for. I mean, he he doesn't care. He doesn't know. By the way, he fell off his bicycle today, but that's a separate issue. I mean, this <laughs> this is very tricky business, Joe Labornia. It's it's very tricky, Larry, and I'll leave it to you to wade into the politics of it. But you, you've taught me well. I'm going to be a diplomat on this one. But uh, the, I think he's he's going to he's he's going to Midland for war, not but, Ukraine, Midland. But uh, Larry, these these oil companies, they uh, you, know, you talk about long term stocks for the long term. You know, these oil companies make these long term capital investments. So when they close these wells, when they reopen it, even if it's only six, 12 months later, sometimes they don't get the same efficiency they've had. And they're spending a lot on CapEx, but they're spending on all the cleaner technologies, which is great. But as you know, you need to have that transition uh, to move away from the hydrocarbons. And that's going to take a long period of time. And, and they just have not made the commitment to invest. In the infrastructure to pump oil, which is why, from a production perspective, we're down about 10, 15 percent from where we were under President Trump. The great, the great part about this story, though, is Biden wants the refiners. He wants these oil companies to increase their refining of gasoline. But his, his EPA and, other, and his SEC won't let them get any permits they're closing refineries, and then you got big states like California that are telling them you can't refine gasoline. You got to refine renewables. You got to refine ethanol. You got to refine all kinds of things, but gasoline. So on the one hand, he says refine more. On the other hand, his regulations say we won't let you. We're closing down refineries. I mean, I think he's very confused about this, Stephanie Link. I mean, I think the guy he. He's against fossil fuels. He says he's going to end fossil fuels, but he's telling the fossil fuel companies to give us more fossil fuels. I mean, I think yeah. he's got a, a logic problem here. It's a, it's very, very confusing, and also using you know the strategic petroleum reserve as a as a temporary uh, stopgap is not going to do anything. Which, by the way, we actually have to rebuild that at some mm. at some point, right? At much higher prices. Uh, than uh, under the prior administration. Here's from an investor. Here's the way I think of it um, from an investment point of view. Um, a couple of years ago, I sat down with the CEO of Chevron, uh, Mike Worth, and uh, he is an extremely knowledgeable person. Yeah, he's terrific. And he basically, he's terrific. He really is. And he's run that company absolutely stellar. It's been a great, great uh, stock. 
in the last couple of years. But besides that, he basically said, I have been told by investors for many years to be uh, more uh, shareholder friendly. So to use the free cash flow that we get in the door and to pay it out in dividends and buybacks. And yes, in business investment, but you're right, clean energy initiatives. And so for, for him to do an about face, would be absolutely, I think, the worst decision. And I don't think it would happen because he is, has taken on an entirely new strategy. So has the entire industry, even the EMP companies, which we know they have been boom and bust over the years. They are paying out special dividends. And then on top of that, other dividends and buybacks and that sort of thing. And so they have listened to shareholders, and that's why these stocks have done as well. And by the way, even if oil prices were to fall because of, quote, unquote, demand destruction, which was what the story was on Friday, which is why the the the, uh, the sector got hit so hard this yes uh, on, on Friday, but also this, this past week. They they're basically saying that they can make money at forty dollar oil. That's their break even. Right. right. So right. they're minting money right now, and that's why the earnings are going higher, and that's why the momentum investors are in there, and that's why I think on pullbacks, that's one of the sectors that you still want to be very much involved in. Hmm. Well, I'll think about that. I mean, I'm I'm all for it, but I see Hugo Chavez coming across the border. He'd come across the southern border. He'd be an illegal immigrant, but, you know, he wants to increase nationalization. I mean, Joe Biden's got himself a logic problem. He's saying, I want you guys to refine more gasoline, all right? And then in the next sentence, he says, we're going to end fossil fuels. So... That's kind of a disincentive for longer-term investment. I don't, I don't think he gets that, but as I but, said. Well, the problem is also, if he, even if he said, okay, turn on the refiners, it takes three to five years to build a refinery, right? right? So it's going to take a long, long time, and we do still have a supply problem. We really do. All right. And We're the refineries take... are operating at 95% already, capacity. Yes, yes that's right. Yes, that's, that's right. correct. And as I said, his EPA is closing them down. He wants more. They say less. They ought to get their act together. Anyway, Stephanie Link, chief investment uh, strategist at Hightower Advisors. Joe Lavornia, formerly the chief economist of the White House National Economic Council. We'll be right back. We've got to talk about interest rates. Also, what's the next move for the 10-year? I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm here with Stephanie Link and Joe Lavornia. Joe Lavornia, how high are interest rates going to go? Let's start with the Fed funds rate. Um, I don't think they're going to – I mean, they're going in July, but I, there's going to be a pause sooner than people think because – uh, the economy, as I said, is, is is in recession or about ready to go into one. And I just don't like, Larry, what what I'm seeing in the credit markets, because even though historically 10-year yields are, are low at around three and a quarter, 330, mortgage rates are over 6%. Uh, Investment-grade corporate yields are well up over 5%. And uh, I see those yields going higher, potentially Treasury yields rallying as it flight the quality bid. So I'd say we've probably seen the highs for Treasuries because I don't think the funds rate will get to 4%. You might disagree on that. So I think we've probably seen the highs for yields, uh, but we have perhaps not seen the highs for, for corporate borrowing rates or mortgage rates. And if that's the case, then at some point we will get another down like the stocks. You know, Stephanie, <coughs> excuse me, Milton Friedman taught us a long time ago <coughs> the phrase inflationary recession. Mm. And that, 
this demand destruction stuff. Look, monetary policy works with long and variable lags. That was Friedman's point. The increase in federal spending and the increase in the money supply in 2020 and 2021, uh, particularly the money supply, that can last till 23 or 24. You can have a recession and inflation at the same time, which is the worst of all worlds and could mean much higher interest rates as the Fed uh, continues to tighten. I mean, that's your double-dip scenario, or maybe that's your big-dip scenario. Yeah, look, I mean, it's totally possible. I mean, we've been hearing about uh, high inflation and slower growth for quite some time. I mean, look, we entered into 2022 expecting to see slower growth in 2020 and 2021 just because we didn't have uh, we, we, we wouldn't have the same fiscal or monetary policy accommodation. I mean, you remember back in 2020, if you added up fiscal and monetary policy stimulus together, that was 60 percent of U.S. GDP. Back in 2008, the last quote unquote crisis, it was 5 percent. So clearly they put a ton of stuff into the system. The reason why I am thinking that we don't see a, a, a recession or if we do, it's kind of a mild one is because we still do have quite a bit of stimulus in the system. And I go back to looking at the job market. And while I am watching a lot of these technology companies starting to talk about freezes and, and, and that sort of thing, I think it's sector specific for now because they really enjoyed quite a bit of demand from the pull through demand from stay at home uh, the situation. So we thought 2022 was going to be slow. It is going to be slow. The Fed is now going to be uh, a lot more aggressive because inflation has been, been stubbornly high and it's going to stay stubbornly high. So in that kind of scenario, it's not great for stocks, but we have to wait and watch to see what happens on the earnings front. And I think companies are in a better position than they used to be. I mean, we just went through three years of massive restructurings at these companies uh, and lowering costs as best that they could. And so I think they're able to weather the storm. And I just, I don't see down profits. And if I don't see down profits and I see something like a five or 6% growth in earnings, mm. um, there are areas in the markets that you, in equities that you want to certainly be investing in and dollar cost average in. Well, I kind of like that. I mean, I'm partial to that point of view anyway. Uh, yeah. My pal, Barry Ritholtz, I'm looking up at Real Clear Markets. He says it's too late to sell and too early to buy. So, mm -hmm. it's gonna, that's, so, so Joe, Joe LaVorne, I'm just going to tell you, buddy, they're going to hit 75 in July. They're going to hit 75 in September. And there's going to be more 75 because inflation is not going down for a while. I don't we're going to have it. a deep recession. We're going to have yes, a deep There's we no are. question we're going to have a we're deep have an election. You're, you're going to have yeah. an election year a deep election year recession in 23-24, Joe. That's but, what's going to happen. Here's the thing, though, Larry. Here, here's my pushback to both yours and Stephanie points, which are great points, and that is simply this. I don't believe that the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, has the backbone to do what you guys say he's going to continue to do. Oh, and it's he, very he, he easy. said it. But wait a he, second. He said, if we're talk is cheap, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and Larry, most of the new Fed governors are worried about climate change and social justice, not Larry, inflation. Larry, no, no, no. Larry I'm not going to take that bait now. I'm going to finish this point. But the, uh, as Stephanie was talking, you guys are talking about you know not having a deep recession and not believing the Fed's forecast. If the Fed believes its own forecast of roughly one seven growth and inflation coming down nicely, the soft landing. Uh, they believe that. They very well may believe that right now. However, I don't believe it. And my guess is as things progress through this year and it becomes more obvious it's going to be more painful, 
the Fed backs away. So that's where I would push back against this notion he can continue to go 75 because as they break more and more things, uh, they're going to they're going to panic and they're going to pause, if not reverse. Stephanie, give us the last word. Give us some hope. <laughs> give us some hope. Mm-hmm. I think you have to think long term, and I yes. think you do have to uh, invest in high quality companies, in, in large cap companies where there's visibility or better visibility, uh, where there's transparency. Do not get into the mess of China and Chinese stocks and that sort of thing. I think here in the U.S. is where you want to be. Free cash flow rules the day, and there are plenty of companies that are flush with cash, and that's the bright spot in this really dark situation at this Dividend payers? Dividend payers too, Steph? Love dividend payers. I like dividend growth versus high dividends, right? Because it's obviously, you know, that's... It kind of makes sense. But, yeah, no, dividend is really been doing quite well this year. So Stephanie Link and Joe LaVornia. Thanks, kids. Thank you. On the other side of the break, we're going to do some money and politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. What about Joe Manchin? My heart could be broken if Joe buys into this tax and spend deal. My heart is broken. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back after this. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Vice President and Chief Economist of FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, author of Govzilla. Uh, Liz Peek, I just want to begin with the fact that Joe Biden fell off his bicycle. I know. Oh, my goodness. In Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Now, I think he fell off his bike about a year and a half ago, but this was a real falling off the bike. Yeah, this is not good. And I have to say, I was looking to see. I couldn't see if he had a helmet on. I presume he did because, yeah. oh, my gosh, the last thing we need is for the president to fall on his head. Uh, it, it is not. It, it is an awful sight, and it's been viewed by hundreds of thousands of people. It really doesn't help the narrative that Joe Biden is vigorous and ready for another four years. Well, Steve, he says his foot got stuck in the pedal, and he, he did bounce back, and he did some glad handing. So I think he's okay. So Kamala Harris has not yet been sworn in as president. <laughs> well, you know, and look, the Democrats have, you know, uh, by the way, Liz was talking about whether he can go another four years. I mean, I think there's real concern about whether he can go for another one year, frankly. But I think the Democrats have a real, real problem. I mean, they have uh, Biden, who is, you know, somewhat incapacitated, and then Kamala Harris, I mean, no one in the country wants her to be president. Even the Democrats don't want her to be president. So they, there's a real conundrum. I don't know what they're going to do. I, I, I assume that they're going to try to get Kamala out as the vice president, uh, maybe make her the head of the United Nations or something like that, and, you know, and, then, and then you know bring somebody in that's competent. But here's the big issue right now, I think, Larry, is – you know, would you hire any of these people for a real job? <laughs> Seriously, would you would you hire Jennifer Granholm? Would you hire Pete Buttigieg? Would you hire, uh, you know, Kamala Harris to do any job? There, there is a real competence. Putting aside ideology, there's a real competence deficit in this administration. You know, he That's can me. fire her. He can he can fire her. I mean, Jerry Ford fired Nelson Rockefeller, who was his vice president. 
fired him. Put in Bob Dole back in 1976, 75-76. So but but, could, they, but you fired. guys are missing the point here. They refuse to acknowledge there's a problem. Oh, I mean, yes. with, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, I actually I'm serious. <laughs> you know, I was reading the stats on the latest month's uh, number of people coming across our border being apprehended at the border included 15 people on the terror watch list. Uh, mm. You know, fentanyl deaths are off the charts. I mean, doesn't anybody care about this? Well, that is supposed to be Kamala Harris's responsibility. When was the last time we heard anything about her involvement with the border? I just think I think they're going to limp through the next two and a half years or whatever it is. And, and Joe Biden, bless his heart, is going to continue about to talk about running again. And the Democrats are going to go crazy because they don't know how to fix it. Well, he, well you, you know, know uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead, please. No, it's good. I wanted to ask. Uh, Liz, a question, um, if I may, Larry, because it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's the big chatter in Washington. This woman, Cheryl Shamberg, or Shamberg, the Cheryl one who Shanberg. wrote, uh, who wrote uh, Lean In and uh, was with Facebook. I mean, there's a real buzz about her being the presidential nominee for the Democrats. And I just wonder what you think about that. Well, um, she is certainly a competent person, or at least that's her reputation. But she's also invest- under investigation internally. Uh, in the company for having misused company funds and so forth for her own, I think it was her wedding reception or something like that. So I'm not sure. And and I think think a lot of women uh, kind of pushed back about her book when it came out, sort of noting that, yeah, it was pretty easy for Sheryl Sandberg, who is a very highly ranked corporate executive with all the perks that that comes with, to have a kid, have it all, et cetera, it's not so easy for most women who are working at much lower salaries and with much right. less help. So I, I don't know, Steve, that's a really interesting – I hadn't heard that. I think it's a really interesting idea, and I have to say looking at how thin the bench is for Democrats, <laughs> right. you know, they're right. looking everywhere, and un, including under the sofa cushion. So, I, you know, <laughs> it's right. interesting. I was yeah. just going to say that – after he fell off his bike, he didn't have any scratches or anything on his legs. Um, no scratches. So. He's okay. He's oh. going to be around for a while. He's good. But he can fire Kamal Harris. But Steve Forbes, even though he didn't, he wasn't hurt falling off the bike. He did tell the Associated Press that the idea that federal spending causes inflation is a bizarre idea. <laughs> Now, that's worse yeah. than falling off your bike. Well, you know, I think I mentioned to you guys last week that I did this hearing on Tuesday where the Democrats took their victory lap on the economy. And their, <laughs> their Democratic witness was this woman. I forget her name. She's with the Macroeconomic Forecasting or a group like that. And uh, uh, chairman or the ranking Republican is uh, Smith. Uh, what's his first name? Uh, uh, Jason. Jason. Uh, Jason Smith. And he just. I mean, it was he just tore into her and said, look, you were the one who a year ago and I'm not just making fun of her, but but also the two dozen or so Nobel Prize winners who said there will be no inflationary effect from all of this spending. And these people need to really be held to task for these ridiculous forecasts 
that said, how dare anyone say that, you know, this is going to cause inflation? And it has. We have raging inflation. And then they wonder why nobody, you know, trusts, quote, the experts, because almost all of the experts on the left got this wrong. But it, it was a sad commentary that the only Democrat witness, that their star witness was someone who had the inflation numbers really, really wrong. And look, I think Biden I, look, I think if the economy is in a recession right now, I think it could be really deep. I know Art Lapper, I talked to him yesterday, he, he thinks it could be really bad. I mean, the financing capital is just dried up right yeah. now. You've got small businesses now with their – I talked to people at the NFIB. They said small business confidence has just fallen as low as it's been since the, you know, the, the financial crisis in 2008. So it just feels like the economy's hit a brick wall. Liz, um, Joe Biden also told the AP that more and more people have mental health problems. And my thought on this is that they have mental health problems because of his policies. I know. We're all depressed. Yes, we're depressed. We're stressed. We're stressed out and we have high anxiety because of what he's done. Exactly. I mean, really, who's, who's shocked by that? Uh, you know, actually, I, I saw that um, I read his speech or his transcript, whatever, and he says Americans are really, really down. I think that mm. was the word he used. Yeah. And it immediately I went back to Jimmy Carter's Melez speech. Yeah. Um, because there is such a good parallel here. Uh, really, if you read Jimmy Carter's speech, there was nothing particularly offensive in it, except he kind of just noticed, <laughs> he noted maybe and noticed that the American people were not happy. And they weren't happy because the <laughs> right. economy wasn't growing, because inflation was horrible. I thought this was incredibly a re- repeat of that. There was nothing terrible no. about saying Americans are down. But huh, guess what, Joe? They're down because you have taken a thriving country, which was doing so well, even in the midst of a pandemic, which is kind of unbelievable, and basically destroyed everything that was in place. And look, that's, this isn't a mystery. That's why the approval ratings are so terrible, because everyone blames Joe Biden and, and you know, consequently, the, the Democrats' big spending. It's not a mystery why we're in trouble, but he just refuses to acknowledge it. He's uh, holding firm at about a 25 percent approval rating on the economy. Yeah. 25. That's Steve Steve Moore, people are stressed out because of high gas prices, high food prices, no baby food on the shelves. I mean, that's why their their retirement savings are getting mauled in the stock market. I mean, you know, I have I I'm stressed out. I'd have high anxiety. I'd have mental health problems. He doesn't seem to connect the dots. Yeah, you know, I'm sitting next to my wife right now, and she gave me, she does our finances, and she told me yesterday, I'm not going to tell you the number, but we're not rich. We've lost a lot of money in the last three months, and, and uh, you know, any idea of, uh, you know, taking that expensive vacation or buying a second home, all that's, you know, got to be put aside. So people are feeling incredible financial stress right now, and when Joe Biden, Larry, how is it that he keeps saying we have records amounts of savings. We've yeah. lost $10 trillion of savings. Yeah. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. This has been the biggest evac- evaporation of American savings and retirement accounts, you know, since 2008. And, yeah. and, then, and he's acting as if people are flush with cash. How is it that he keeps saying federal spending doesn't cause inflation? How is it that he keeps saying that his American inflation rate is lower than the rest of the world's inflation rate? It's, I mean, it's all, how does he say these things? 
I, I don't know, but it, it, it isn't like people aren't calling him out on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know people are doing that. And, and on, I mean, honestly, the, the parade of lies, just statistical lies, yeah. and to, to Steve's point, this idea that your, your savings are in good shape. What on earth is he talking about? Consumer debt is going down, he says. Yeah, no, right. consumer debt is going up. Everything he says <laughs> is black is white and white is black. It, it is extremely alarming because it suggests – but anyway, back to spending. The reason he can't <laughs> say that, Larry, is because he wants to spend more. That yes, is their does. answer yes, to everything. Does. And how can you say, oh, my gosh, inflation's terrible and we did it because we spent too much money. But here, here's another $3 trillion we'd like to put out there just to make things better. That uh, is the problem. Not just that, Liz, but also, you know, Larry, you sent me that note this morning. About, no, no, let's not. Know, we're we're going to take a break, and then we're going to okay. go to that. We're going to get into that, yeah. The, yeah, the question is, is Joe Manchin going to break my heart? That's the thing. Joe Manchin, break my heart? I don't think, I mean, I'll be completely stressed out with high anxiety and have to have mental health uh, uh, consultations. We're here with Liz Peak, Fox News contributor, and Steve Moore from Freedom Works and uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. I'm Kudlow. Joe Manchin just may break my heart. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. There was no medical attention necessary after he fell off his bike today. I keep reporting on this story. It's breaking news. (laughs) All right, kids. Uh, Joe Manchin talking to Chuck Schumer. They're kind of secret talks. No staff allowed. Some leaks. Our friend um, Dan Clifton of Strategus has some potential numbers out. I'm going to read these. On the spending side, about $900 billion, which would be $500 billion for tax credits for renewables, $220 billion for enhanced Obamacare, and $180 billion for more Medicaid coverage. And on the tax side, $1.6 trillion in tax hikes, A 15% minimum corporate tax, 15% guilty tax, 1% buyback tax, 5% and 8% surtaxes on wealthy people, uh, 3.8% tax on investments, $1.6 trillion. Joe Manchin. Liz Peake, is Joe Manchin going to break my heart? You know how I've defended him. He's been so great. He helped to save America and kill the bill. Why on earth would he want to do this? And by the way, why does he care about $500 billion in tax credits for renewables? He's from West Virginia, which is a fossil state. I don't get any of this. I don't either because his approval ratings have gone through the roof in West Virginia right. since the beginning of Joe Biden's uh, tenure in the White House. And guess why? That's because he has stood in the way of this excess, reckless spending. And for him to turn around on that now, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he's under gigantic pressure. Uh, I really cannot imagine why he would go along with this. And boy, I can't imagine going into a recession, which we are, that higher prices is the, I mean, higher taxes is a remedy that Mm -hmm. even Democrats would applaud. I just think it's nuts. Steve, what do you, let me say, Grover Norquist was on the show earlier. Grover thinks uh, 
first of all, Grover is skeptical that they can get the Democratic votes and reconciliation to do this uh, with people like Kelly in Arizona and Hassan in New Hampshire and perhaps others. But he said the way they could structure it in reconciliation rules is the spending is now they'll pass tax hikes, but the tax hikes won't take effect for several years. Well, that's really not much better, but I don't know. What are you hearing? I mean, is this sounds serious. By the way, Jim Lucier of Capital Alpha is reporting the same thing. So something's going on here. Steve, are you there? No, Steve. All right, Liz, we'll continue. Something is going Sorry, on. I, I, I'm back. Oh, oh you're back. Sorry, okay. I, I, was on, I was on mute. Um, look, I'm with Liz. I think I can't imagine that, uh, that Joe Manchin, who is a hero, he's my man of the year, would uh, would would backtrack like this, especially going into a recession. Um, we need to be cutting taxes right now. I mean, I love your idea of the uh, making the tra- Trump tax cuts permanent. Let's let's flatten out the rates. Let's mm-hmm. let's 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 make let's and, and on the regulatory front, you know, too. So there's so much work that could be done. Incidentally, they have poured so much money into green energy and renewable energy. Yeah. Why don't they just buy every American a Tesla? <laughs> yes, I want a Tesla. I could cheaper. be, I could be, yes, I could be had for a free Tesla. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, uh, we haven't done enough re- reconnaissance and intelligence on this because they may be hatching this package. You know, I don't know if you read the Holman Jenkins article, his, one of his columns in the last week or two. All this spending on renewables has not moved yeah, uh, the no. meter at no. all on yeah. carbon right. emissions. It hasn't done a thing. And uh, now we know it's not reliable and so forth, and 80% is still fossil fuels. But you just keep spending on renewables. It's just a darn welfare plan. That's all it is for you know Democratic interest groups. It's, it has nothing to do with improving carbon emissions. You know, Larry, I think, honestly, it has to do with Joe Biden losing such popularity among young voters. And what young voters probably care about more than any other group is climate change. Uh, So it's just honestly, I think it's virtue signaling. It's kind of saying to those groups, uh, we're not going to give up, even though, you know, everything else is going to hell in a handbasket. Boy, we really care about electric vehicles. There is nothing serious about this effort. They have made no long term cogent plan for how we're going to shift to electric vehicles. Uh, my favorite tweet of the week of the week last week was the demonstration of someone unveiling a new electric charging facility. And somebody happens to ask, you know, wh- where's oh. the energy coming from? Yes. And the guy from the utility says, oh, actually, 95 percent coal. I almost <laughs> fell off my chair laughing. I mean, I know. you know, they don't they don't get it that there's a source for electricity. That's how ignorant these people are about how our energy industry works. And they really are. I mean, it's more serious. Sorry to interrupt, but it's more ser- There's something really serious going on here. I, as you guys know, I'm from Illinois, the Chicago area. There was a, just a big story in the Chicago papers that, that they, they're gonna think, <clears throat> they think they're going to have rolling brownouts yeah. in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. People are going to lose their electric power, which is not just an economic issue, but it's also a public I mean, how are you going to run the plants? How are you going to run the construction companies? How are you going to do anything without without electric power? 
And you're right, Liz, the, the green energy stuff is all the big fad among young people. But wait until they stick their rechargers into the wall and no power comes out. <laughs> then they're not going to think it's so great. Most, By the way, most kids have no idea. I do this when I give speeches on high school and college campuses. I say, do you know where you get your electricity from? And they point to the outlet. And they say, it comes yeah, out of there. Exactly. They don't even have any concept. Uh, and then, then they think, oh, gee, did you know that you know, 60 to percent of our energy comes from natural gas and coal? They have no idea. Yeah, Steve I, I, Moore. I agree. And the and the worrisome thing is, when those brownouts take place, the media will lie and the elected officials will lie about why it's taking place. They're going to say, well, you know, fossil fuels. I mean, look what happened in Texas <laughs> when the wind turbines froze. They didn't blame. The wind turbines for the the crisis that took place in Texas, England didn't blame the offshore uh, wind, t- uh, you know, uh, for stopping blowing this summer when they had a six-fold increase in electricity. They will not understand what happened, and I, I think it's incredibly worrisome. We're going in such a bad direction. Steve Moore. I just wanted to know which college campuses let you on to give a speech. <laughs> well, you know, actually, just I do find that the more elite the schools are, whether it's Berkeley or whether it's Duke or Northwestern, the kids are more out of touch with reality than the kids yeah. that are actually going to practically junior colleges or vocational schools. I mean, they, they're living in a never-never land, and, and we're responsible for this. Um. Joe Biden, speaking of the energy crisis, Joe Biden has accused Exxon of excess profits and they're not paying their fair share of taxes. So Exxon lost $20 billion in 2020. But in 2021, Exxon paid $40 billion in taxes. You think that's paying their fair share, Liz Peak? $40 yeah. billion? The, the only other story like this is Elon Musk. Biden acu- Remember Biden accused Musk of yeah. not paying his fair <laughs> share? He paid $11 billion as an individual in taxes. What do you make of that one? Well, I, I was delighted to see that Exxon put out a statement about exactly what they have spent. They have spent yeah. tens of billions of dollars to increase domestic production, also spent an enormous amount to increase their refining capacity. The, it, the ignorance of the attack on the refining industry absolutely boggles the mind. Joe Biden's pitch is, oh, my gosh, the margins are out of control. Gas prices shouldn't be where they are. Refiners are making so much extra money money, they should be refining more, as though a refiner making all that extra money isn't refining every single barrel of oil they can get their hands on. It's so preposterously stupid. And of course, that's what's happening. Refiners are all out. They're refining at maximum capacity right now. Who is going to build a new grassroots refinery? We haven't had one since the 70s, when it takes tens of billions of dollars, probably 14 years to do with all the permits, et cetera. And basically, the government's saying they're going to put you out of business. It didn't yeah, going to happen. Yeah, by the way, Liz, uh, three cheers to Exxon. Three cheers. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. finally, yep. finally, finally, we've got a major oil and gas company that's actually defending their industry. Yep. Uh, and they, I love that letter. I mean, it basically just said, Joe Biden, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea about this industry. You're the one who basically – remember that debate, Larry, uh, the last debate that Trump had with, with uh, Biden, where, where Biden said, I want to – run the oil and gas companies out of business. Well, yep. you know, I mean, for him to say, oh, I want them to produce as much as they can now 
when he's done nothing but try to destroy the industry is, is just beyond the pale. Well, he wants Biden wants more refining, but Biden's own regulators are closing <laughs> refineries. They're closing them. We haven't, we haven't built a new refinery in this country. They've been out for 25 years thanks to his green energy price. Liz Peak, thank you. Steve Moore, thank you, kids. You're thank both spectacular. You. Folks, 4 to 5 p.m. every day on Fox Business. The name of the show is Cudlow on TV. Please join us, and I'll be back here next weekend. <laughs>